Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast edition of History with Sai. First off, hope that you and your loved ones are safe during this really unprecedented time in our recent history. Please take care of yourselves out there. Stay safe. In the last episode, we ended with the Assyrian Empire just gaining its independence from the Mitanni and becoming a regional power in Mesopotamia and also southwestern Anatolia. Essentially, kings such as Ashur-ubilit had created the foundation necessary for further expansion, which other rulers, specifically the ones we'll be talking about in this episode, leveraged for the benefit of the Assyrian state. So, let's get into it. In 1307 BCE, the Assyrian king Adad-Nirari came to the throne. He's actually one of my favorite kings to read about because he's left a lot of texts and inscriptions behind that are just really interesting to examine, especially his correspondence with other kings. Adad-Nirari further expanded the Assyrian kingdom by taking over cities and towns that had once belonged to the kingdom of the Mitanni, including their former capital city of Washukani. At that time, what was left of the Mitanni state was called Hanigalbat. The Assyrians claimed Hanigalbat to be within their own sphere of influence. However, when Hanigalbat's king, Shutara, defied Adad-Nirari, he was arrested, brought to Asher, and forced to swear an oath of vassalage, as well as pay a hefty annual tribute. His successor, Wasashata, refused to pay this tribute and instead asked the Hittites for aid against Assyria. As you may know from past programs, the Hittites were an Indo-European-speaking people who ruled an empire from their homeland in central Anatolia, which is today in modern Turkey. Many texts from the time address them as the Hatti, after the land that they lived in. I think that the best description of what happened between Hanigalbat and Assyria comes from Adad-Nirari himself. In a text attributed to him, he states, When Shutara, the king of Hanigalbat, rebelled against me and committed hostilities, at the command of Asher, my lord and ally, and by the great gods, my good advisers, I seized him, then brought him to my city, Asher. I made him swear an oath, then I released him. Every year, as long as he was alive, I received his tribute in my city, Asher. After him, his son, Wasashata, revolted, rebelled against me, and committed hostilities. He went to Hati for help. Hati took his bribes, but he did not lend his aid. With the mighty weaponry of the god Asher, my lord, and with the support of Anu, Enlil, and Ea, Sin, Shamash, Adad, Ishtar, and Nergal, the omnipotence of the gods, the terrifying gods, my lords. I seized by conquest the cities of Taidu, his great royal city, Amasaku, Kahat, Shuru, Nabula, Hura, Shuduhu, and Washukani. I took the possessions of those cities, his forefathers' accumulations, and his palace treasure, and brought them to my city, Asher. Though he claimed to have annexed Hanigalbat, in reality, this didn't happen until the rule of his son, Shalmaneser. More on that, though, in a few moments. 
Adad Nirari's victory and further incorporation of Hanigalbat into his realm allowed Assyria to join the esteemed club of elite kingdoms and empires of the ancient Middle East. The other powers in that club were the Hittites, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians under the Kassite dynasty. However, this doesn't mean that all of these kingdoms were of equal status or power. Of the four, Egypt and Hatti were the most powerful, with Babylon, and now Assyria, having roughly the same power and status. It was also clear that some kings didn't recognize the newcomer, Assyria, as their equal. The Hittite king, Mershili III, better known in ancient texts as Urhu Teshub, was one example. He no doubt hated Adad-Nirari because the latter's recent military victories in Hanigalbat were at his expense. Still, Adad-Nirari sought to reassure Urhu Teshub that he was not hostile to Hatti and that he was no threat to the city of Karkamish, the Hittite empire's most prized possession in the Levant. He wrote to Urhu Teshub, addressing him as my brother. The feeling, though, wasn't mutual, and Urhu Teshub sent the following response. Why do you still continue to speak about brotherhood? For what reason should I write to you about brotherhood? Do those who are not on good terms customarily write to one another about brotherhood? On what account should I write to you about brotherhood? Were you and I born from the same mother? As my grandfather and my father did not write to the king of Assyria about brotherhood, you shall not keep writing to me about brotherhood and great kingship. It is not my wish. So as you can see, his response was a major snub, a total diss. Interestingly, the next king of Hatti was Hattushili III, a veteran warrior, capable administrator, and uncle of Urhu Teshub, he seized the throne from his nephew because, at least according to him, the young king was an incompetent, pompous, arrogant little... Well, he didn't use those exact words, but that was basically his justification for usurping the throne. As a usurper, though, he naturally wanted to curry favor with the other great powers of the region, including Assyria. Thus... Hattushili had no problem acknowledging Adad-Nirari as his equal. This time, though, it was Adad-Nirari who snubbed a Hittite king. Apparently, Hattushili seemed hurt that Adad-Nirari had not formally recognized his ascension to the throne of Hatti. He wrote in a letter, When I assumed kingship, you did not send an ambassador to me. It is the custom that when kings assume kingship, the kings his equals in rank, send him appropriate greeting gifts, clothing fit for kingship, and fine oil for his anointing. But you did not do this today. However, once Hattushili was firmly in control of his kingdom, Assyria recognized the new Hittite king. In 1245 BCE, Adad-Nirari was succeeded by his son, who took the throne name Shalmaneser. It's during his reign that we first read inscriptions and texts with the word Uruarti, the name of an enemy that would harass Assyrian forces to their north for centuries. In English, we use the word Urartu, which generally refers to a very powerful Iron Age kingdom around the area that is today Lake Van. In Shalmaneser's day, though, the area still hadn't been consolidated into a single kingdom. In fact, 
the land of Urartu seems to have been fractured into petty little city-states that at the time spoke a particular dialect of Hurrian. Shalmaneser describes destroying 51 of them for rebelling, which implies that the Assyrians had already conquered, or at least were exacting tribute and resources from the area. These probably would have included copper, iron, lead, cattle, sheep, goats, and crops such as wheat, barley, millet, and rye. Speaking of resources, during Shalmaneser's reign is also the first time we hear of management of certain types of human resources, specifically the deportation of entire towns and other large masses of people. These were usually conquered populations who were thought to have been rebellious and threatening to the Assyrian state. The line of thinking was that if these rebellious populations were relocated to a land that was foreign to them, they'd be unable to mobilize and use their new location to their advantage, should they decide to revolt. Besides, once conquered, there was often nothing left for any survivors to return to. Assyrian reprisals against rebels were especially punitive and could lead to the total destruction of a city or town. For example, Shalmaneser tells of two rebellious towns, Arini and Musri, that were razed to the ground and their surviving populations taken to Asher. There, they would witness the soil taken from their ruined cities and scattered in front of Asher's main gate, a symbol to the conquered people that their old homes were now dust and that they served Assyria. Now, by limiting such threats, or potential threats, the Assyrians were helping to strengthen their own security. However, perhaps the real reason for deporting people was economic. Assyria was expanding rapidly into new territories that had fertile farmland as well as natural resources and valuable metals. However, there were only so many Assyrians to go around, and these conquered peoples had skills. They were farmers, metalsmiths, woodworkers, all trades and professions that were very useful to an expanding state. Prisoners of war, though, had it the worst. For them, they were pretty much like slaves. For example, after a definitive campaign against Hanigalbat, 14,400 prisoners, according to Shalmaneser, were blinded and then deported. This blinding was presumably in one eye, otherwise it's hard to see, no pun intended, how they would have been able to have worked. In addition, we also have texts that speak of the rations some of these people received. One speaks of dividing up wool and grain amongst a group of 720 people from a place called Shubru, another 99 from the land of Nairi, which would have been in the area we just identified as Urartu, and another 174 people from a northern land called Kadmuk. So as we can see, Shalmaneser's reign was one of both expansion as well as increased fortification and administration of the lands that his father, Adad-Nirari, had conquered. Shalmaneser, though, is best remembered as the king who put the final nail in the coffin of Hanigalbat when he defeated their last king, Shatuara II. After that, we never really hear of Hanigalbat again. This, according to many Assyriologists, was Shalmaneser's most lasting and far-reaching contribution, and cemented Assyria's stature as one of the great powers of the ancient Near East. Power and greatness, as well as arrogance, went to a whole new level under Shalmaneser's successor, who went under the throne name Tukulti Ninurta, which means 
I trust in the god Ninurta. It's a name that honestly suits him because Ninurta was a god associated with war. Tukulti Ninurta is one of the more interesting, if not eccentric, kings of Assyrian history. His early successes on the battlefield, the controversy he created, and his rather gruesome death have made him somewhat of a legend. During his relatively long reign, he not only consolidated Assyrian rule over the territories acquired by his father, but also extended the boundaries of Assyria further to the north, as well as imposed his will on Babylonia, leading to the rather sacrilegious plundering of its capital, Babylon. In his honor, he built a new capital city, Kar Tukulti Ninurta, in part as a refuge from all of the political intrigue and personal danger that his somewhat reckless actions had brought upon himself. So let's talk about his reign. Tukulti Ninurta became king of Assyria after his father's death in 1245 BCE, and right off the bat, he went to war with the Hittites and captured some territory, forcing its king, Tudhalia IV, to sign a treaty that was favorable to Assyria. It's probably also around this time that the Kassite king of Babylon, Kashtaliash IV, made a major political miscalculation. Many historians believe that with Tukulti Ninurta occupied with wars towards his northwest, Kashtaliash took advantage of the situation to seize some territory from Assyria's southern border. This was followed by a brutal, crushing response from Tukulti Ninurta in the form of a military campaign that was just short of the total destruction of Babylon. We don't really have a Babylonian account as to why the war started, but from the Assyrian point of view, there's no doubt that it was Kashtaliash's fault. We get this feeling not from the inscriptions attributed to Tukulti Ninurta himself, but more from a work of, well, you could call it literature, known as the Epic of Tukulti Ninurta. Yes, Tukulti Ninurta had an epic poem written and recited for the Assyrian public where he laid out the case for his hostile actions against Babylon. Basically, it was framed as a cosmic battle between good and evil, where Tukulti Ninurta was obviously the good guy. While some may simply dismiss it as a work of propaganda, the epic does offer a pretty detailed, though extremely embellished, account of Tukulti Ninurta's conflict with Kashtaliash. Again, this is the Assyrian side of the story. In summary, the epic essentially states that Kashtaliash had broken an oath to the sun god Shamash. What specifically this oath was is not stated, but it's likely that it was some sort of treaty between the two great kingdoms. The epic then states that due to this, the god Enlil became furious with Kashtaliash and ordered Tukulti Ninurta to seek justice. It then goes on to describe the several ways in which Tukulti Ninurta showed his goodwill to the Kassite king, but Kashtaliash, described as being extremely arrogant, was unremorseful of his actions and continued his defiance. Finally, after all of Tukulti Ninurta's peaceful attempts to resolve the conflict failed, he had no choice but to invade Babylonia to correct the great injustice brought about by the Kassite king. The story concludes with the Assyrian king becoming the new ruler of Babylon. This is actually a historical event believed to have occurred in 1225 BCE and is described in one of Tukulti Ninurta's inscriptions. At that time, I approached Kashtaliash, king of Karduniash, to do battle. 
I brought about the defeat of his army. In the midst of that battle, I captured Kashtaliash, king of the Kassites, and I brought him bound as captive into the presence of the god Asher, my lord. Thus, I became the lord of Sumer and Akkad in its entirety and stood over its inhabitants with joy and excellence. Babylonian sources describe the same event in, well, different terms. For example, in Babylonian Chronicle 45, we're told that Tukulti Ninurta destroyed Babylon's walls, slaughtered many of its inhabitants, plundered the Isagil, which was the holy temple dedicated to the city's patron god Marduk, and took the great statue of the god back to Assyria as a trophy. In addition, he then appointed his own governors and puppet kings to rule over Babylon in his name. Tukulti Ninurta's sack of Babylon would ultimately be the bitter turning point in Babylonian-Assyrian relations. From then onward, until the demise of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians would always view the Assyrians with suspicion and contempt. In fact, this wouldn't be the first time that the Assyrians would sack Babylon and desecrate its temples. Future Assyrian kings would do the same, which we'll discuss in other programs. Now before we go any further, I do want to read to you some of the excerpts from the Epic of Tukulti Ninurta so that you get an idea of what it's like. Unfortunately, the copy that has been found is incomplete and has many sections that have been lost due to the passage of time. Still, what we do have is quite impressive. We start off with Tukulti Ninurta pretty much praising Shamash and letting him know that he's his obedient servant. O Shamash, Lord, I abided by your oath. I feared your greatness. I kept your command. When our ancestors made a pact before your divinity, they established an oath between them. They invoked your greatness. You are the warrior who does not change, the judge of our fathers from old. And you are the God who maintains order, now observing our loyalties. Why has the king of the Kassites long frustrated your plan and your command? He did not fear your oath. He transgressed your judgment. He plotted malice. In this next section, Tukulti Ninurta addresses Kashtaliash directly. Until I display your baldness behind you and you go to an untimely death, until my eyes have seen retreats in your battle time and again. Slaughter. Now come to me in battle of soldiers, and let us examine the facts together. In this festival of battle, may he who transgressed the oath not rise up. Let them cast down his body. After skipping through some parts, we come to a point of no return in the conflict, where Kashtaliesh regrets his actions, but it's too late. Tukulti Ninurta, having relied on keeping the oath, planned for battle, while Kashtaliesh's spirits fell because he transgressed the instruction of the gods. He was afraid because of the cry of the complaint to Shamash and the appeal to the gods. He was frightened and concerned. The command of the great king paralyzed his body like an evil spirit. Kashtaliesh thought, I did not listen to the Assyrian. I disregarded the messenger. I did not appease him earlier. I failed to agree to his good plan. Now I have seen. The sin of my land is grievous. 
Immortal punishment has overwhelmed me. Death grips me. The oath of Shamash troubles me. It holds back the hem of my garment. You have brought evidence against me, an unalterable tablet sealed by my ancestors. I placed my people into a merciless hand in an inescapable clutch. I gathered my people into a narrow pit with no escape. My sins are numerous before Shamash. My guilt is great. Who is the God who will spare my people from calamity? The Assyrian is constantly attentive to all the gods. And it goes on. A few other lines I like, basically where the gods fight on behalf of the righteous Assyrians, go like this. And finally, the gods come to the aid of the Assyrians. Battle lines were drawn up. Hostilities commenced on the battlefield. There was a great tumult. The soldiers trembled amongst themselves. Asher went out in front. He kindled a devastating fire upon the enemies. Enlil whirls in the midst of the enemy. He made smoke rise from the flame. Anu set his merciless mace against the wicked. The heavenly light, Sin, fixed upon them the paralysis of war. Adad, the hero, pulled out a wind and flood on their fighting. Shamash, the lord of judgment, blinded the armies of the lands of Sumer and Akkad. Valiant Ninurta, preeminent among the gods, shattered their weapons, and Ishtar whipped with her jump rope, causing their warriors to go mad. That word translated as jump rope in the last line is one that I'm not sure about. I'm thinking that perhaps it's a type of whip. But I think that you get the point. Tukulti Ninurta was in the right, and Kashtaliash was definitely in the wrong. Despite this epic piece of literature, Tukulti Ninurta was not in the clear, nor did he seem to have had the general support of the people after ransacking Babylon and desecrating its temples. One has to remember, this was Babylon, not some hill fortress in the wilderness. I think H.W.F. Sags, in his book The Might That Was Assyria, still one of my favorites on the subject, describes it best. Babylonia was not a land of barbarians that could be invaded at will like the regions beyond Assyria's northern borders. It was the source and center of civilization, and its capital, Babylon, was a religious shrine of the highest sanctity. To sack Babylon in the ancient world was like sacking the Vatican, or Jerusalem, or Mecca in our own time period. Tukulti Ninurta's actions in Babylon went too far even in the minds of many of his own people. Assyrians, like practically everyone else in the ancient world, were very religious people. Though they had their political differences with the ruling Kassite dynasty, they essentially shared the same religion as the Babylonians. Sure, one had Asher at the head while the other was led by Marduk, but other than that, their overall religious beliefs and practices were the same. What Tukulti Ninurta had done was sacrilege to the umpteenth degree. The religious establishment in Asher must not only have been greatly dismayed, but also fearful that eventually the gods would punish the Assyrians for their wanton destruction of the sacred sites of Babylon. On top of that, Tukulti Ninurta was suffering setbacks on the battlefield, and, 
perhaps because of all of the destruction caused with trading partners in Babylonia, the economy was also faltering. After seven years of being ruled by Assyrian puppets, Babylon staged a successful rebellion and regained its independence. The new Kassite king, Adad Shuma Usar, claimed to have been one of Kashtaliyash IV's sons. Being extremely popular, he ended up ruling for 30 years. All of this must have contributed to the loss of confidence that many Assyrians had in their king, which contributed to Tukulti Ninurta's growing paranoia and fears that he would be overthrown, or worse, assassinated. Thus, he spent more time outside of Ashur and instead ruled from the capital city he had built for himself, Kar Tukulti Ninurta. In the end, his fears came to fruition. In 1208 BCE, Tukulti Ninurta was assassinated, most likely by an Assyrian prince, although also possibly with the help and blessings of the religious establishment, as a couple of scholars believe. A Babylonian chronicle records the event. Tukulti Ninurta, who had brought his hand for evil upon Babylon, his son Asher Nasserpal and nobles of Asher rebelled against him, removed him from his throne, imprisoned him in a building in Kar Tukulti Ninurta, and killed him with a weapon. And so ended the reign of one of the Middle Assyrian period's most intriguing kings. So too did the rising power and prestige that Assyria had been experiencing for the past several centuries. A lot of this, though, may have been beyond the Assyrians' control. In the West, mysterious groups of migrants and marauders we know simply as the Sea Peoples were causing havoc in the eastern Mediterranean. This had the effect of cancelling out trade from that and other regions to Assyria's west, which definitely had its impact on the local economy. Assyrian texts also tell of how the Tigris River changed course, though it was eventually brought back to its normal route due to prayers and, more likely, Assyrian engineers. Along with affecting the city, such natural phenomenon may have also indicated some sort of climate change, which is what many historians and archaeologists believe was initially the main reason for the arrival of the Sea Peoples to the west. There were four Assyrian kings within the span of 28 years after Tukulti Ninurta's death, all of whom don't seem to have done anything of great significance. Generally, so many kings within such a short span of time is an indicator of political instability. However, in 1179 BCE, the Assyrian king Ashurdan came to power, and he ruled for 45 years and scored several victories against the Kassites in Babylonia, contributing to their eventual fall, although that was ultimately carried out by the Elamite king Shutruknuhunte and his son, the latter who conquered Babylon and officially put an end to Kassite rule there. Though the Elamites ruled parts of Babylonia for a few years, the real power in Mesopotamia was once again Assyria. The stage was set for another king, Tiglath-Pilezar, to take Assyrian power and influence to a whole new level. We'll save his story for the next episode of the Epic of Ancient Assyria. Thanks so much for listening, I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. There's definitely more to come in the future, but in the meantime, check out the uh, History with Sai YouTube channel, and also some of the other content on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Take care and be safe.